Okay, so I got a question for you. Okay, hit me. You're still a member of AIA, right? I am. You are. For the rest of this year, at least. All right, there you go. Got to get all my money's worth. You know, it was like, what, $878. It was some something crazy. I don't know. It was way up there. Keeps going up. Well, you know, everybody's just like, well, you know, my, uh, like ours, our firm pays for it. If you're a licensed architect, they pay for your AIA membership. And they're like, mm-hmm. well, you know, at least it's a perk. I'm like, it's it's a perk, sure, but it it's also, I was like, or or is it just you're getting paid that much less? No, that's extra money that they had. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, if you would have gotten that much money as a bonus, you would have gotten half that much money as a bonus. So Jake, take it that that's, way. That's true. This was not where I was going, but let's talk about bonuses for a second. Okay. I, I don't know. I don't know if I want them. I don't want bonuses anymore. What do you want? You want to be paid I, fairly up front? I just, no, I just, I would much rather take what would be my bonus money and get a raise. Yeah. Well, this is how corporations make money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the goal is to pay you the least and have you do the most. And then there's always kind of, especially in architecture, there's kind of like the mystical bonus that that lives, or maybe mythical is a better word, <laughs> that, that lives out there someday in the future that you can work really hard for today. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The, you know, and, and again, this wasn't what I was uh, leading to, but do you know how many people that I've known through my career who've worked hard, worked hard, worked hard, and they just get so frustrated and they're like, that's it. I'm quitting. I'm like, it's November. Can't you quit in January? Like, no, <laughs> no, I can't. He's like, no, I can't take it. I'm like, no, 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 no. You, and then you... they get the bonus and then they don't, they're like, oh, I guess I'll stay for a while because I feel valued now. No, no. Well, <laughs> well, no. Or they quit and don't get that bonus. And I look at them and I'm like, you just left money on the table. Now, if they go to another place and they get a, a raise and, and all of that other stuff, then, <laughs> yeah. you know, then it's fine. It's a wash. But there were times when people were doing lateral move or when they were just, well, you know, I'll accept a little bit less because at least I'm not working there, you know, kind of attitude. I'm like, even if that were true, and even if you could like, you know, go somewhere and make a little bit less, you know, just stick it out for the other six weeks or three weeks or whatever to the end of the year, or at least till bonus time. Cause he did have this one guy who he, he had a little bit of health issue, but you know, for the most part, he would, you know, he's perfectly fine now, but at the time he, either he was playing that he had some health issues or he just didn't want to come in, which there was some speculation that he was just didn't want to come in anyway. Sorry, not part of the story, but part of the story, but he hadn't been in for like a few weeks. So he finally came, he came in. And it was the day of the office party, you know, the office holiday party. And this was back, you know, when times were a little bit lean, but we were still, you know, getting bonuses and stuff. And we were having our holiday party in the office. And so we had it and they like handed out checks and all that other stuff. And he got actually a pretty decent bonus because he, you know, when he was there, you know, he actually performed well and he did a really good job on, you know, a couple of like really higher profile projects and all that other stuff. So he got a good bonus. The next day, didn't come in. <laughs> Never came in again. There you go. <laughs> wow. It was just like, it was tremendous. It was just I mean, like. There's, yeah. I, so so I want to go back to your comment about this. So like you, if you wait just three, you know, for a little bit longer, you might, 
And it's like, okay, so first of all, the bonus is never a given, right? It, it's true. It's not we guaranteed. All, we all know this. It's not guaranteed. Not only is it not guaranteed, you you probably have no idea what it's actually going to be because true. this is something that of which nobody speaks of. And then there's this whole idea of, well, what if you did go work somewhere else that gave you more than double what that thing was right now? Right, like right, this, right, this is a real right. thing. This is not a, a it not really real is thing because there have been studies that have shown that people who move around make up to 50% more than those who stay, which is this is a huge problem, right? But it doesn't mean right. by us saying it's a huge problem that anybody's actually trying to fix it either. Obviously, there are some people trying to fix that, but for the most part, like I said before, like corporations everywhere, not just architecture, but but in architecture for sure, are trying to pay you as little as possible and get you to do right. as much as possible because that's how they make profits, right? In a business yeah. that is highly, highly, highly competitive, race to the bottom kind of competitive of less and less fees all the time, consultants charging more and more, getting higher fees, which is a huge complaint amongst architecture offices, and yet mm -hmm. architects still refuse to... Um, demand more <laughs> money for the value that they provide. So, True. like, there's, there's just, there's a lot of weird, like, dysfunction going on there for sure. Yeah. So, say that stat one more time about the fifty percent, fifty percent of those who move around in the profession. And I think it was something like every two years, uh, yeah. fifty percent more than those who stay at the same job. Yeah. There's a friend of mine who is just hit the market looking for a new job, and He's been asking me for advice on, you know, what do you think about this firm or what do you think about that firm? And I was just kind of giving him my insight on him and like offering him, you know, hey, I know that, you know, this person works here and they they really enjoy it here and, and that stuff like that. They were like, I got to make a decision soon. I'm like, what do you mean you got to make a decision soon? He's like, so I went on all these different interviews and every one of them have made me an offer. I didn't think that that was going to happen. I thought I wouldn't hear back from them. He's like, first of all, I put in my resumes and within a day I had interviews and he goes, and not only did I have interviews, but you know, now I've had like a couple of interviews at a couple of different places and some were virtual and then virtual, then in-person. And then now I have my like third in-person and, and he goes in all of these people have made me offers and I, I need to make a decision soon. He's like, I didn't think that that was going to happen. That he was, when I was out looking nine, 10 years ago, that wasn't my experience. My experience was a lot different. It took a lot longer to get a job. And I didn't hear back from people maybe for like a couple of weeks before I even landed an interview or that they were even interested in me. I was like, and see, this is the power that you have. He's like, well, what do you mean? It's like, if everybody wants you, if they're snatching you up um, to, to interview you and are making you offers, you had the opportunity to make a counter offer. He's like, oh, I'd never do that. Like, Negotiation. The one thing that I've been horrible at my entire career is negotiating my own fees. I've always been able to like, you know, tell other people like, dude, you know, you need to work, you know, like you need to negotiate this or you need to negotiate that. And they were like, man, you know, thank you for that. I've never been able to do that for myself and I don't know why, whatever. But I mean... I was trying to just remind him, I'm like, look, clearly, you know, the, the place that you're at, you can stay there if you want to stay there. They'll, you know, probably like give you a raise just for staying there. Or you've got all of these other places that you now have a bargaining chip to go and ask for more money. It's like, you know, don't just take the first offer mm -hmm. and, you know, negotiate a little bit. He's just like, how, 
how do you do that? Yeah. Like know your value, know your worth. And clearly they know your value and your worth because here they are trying to snatch you up quick. And some of them are somewhat demanding that, you know, you give them a response pretty quickly. And you know, it's just like, well, you may say, no, I'd like to have another week because I'm doing other interviews and I just want to make sure that I'm laying in the right place, you know, do what's right for me. Mm-hmm. It, and they're just like, well, what if, what if they pass me up? I'm like, well, then you didn't want to work there. I agree. Negotiation's huge. I had a conversation with, t- with somebody today and, and it wasn't like specifically about employees negotiating for their salaries, but it was about uh, architects negotiating their fees. Right. And that like there's just a real lack of that happening in the industry. And, and I, I kind of go back to architecture school and the kinds of things that we didn't talk right. about there. We didn't talk about money. We didn't talk mm-hmm. about business. We didn't talk about negotiation. What was it like one credit hour for pro practice? It's like, it's insane, (laughs) right? Exactly. And so, so now like this woman I was talking to, she's like, I invested $5,000 in learning negotiation for myself. Like I did my own professional development on negotiation. And this is something now that I teach to other firms and there's great. There's so much value there. And I mean, just, Sign up for Masterclass and take the Chris Voss Master of Negotiation course if you want a place to start. But this is the kind of thing where this is huge. And, and the, the thing you're talking about with this just anecdotal evidence of, of your friend who's in demand, mm-hmm. it, I saw a report today the AIA put out, and it, I think I saw it on LinkedIn, but it, one of the p- bullet points was that our, our firms are still hiring like crazy and there are not yes. enough people. And so, I mean, you're, you're just kind of reassuring that those findings with, with actual, yeah. you know, someone you know, which yeah. is, I mean, that's because so, so you know that like it's not just spin. Like the industry's fine. Like it, it, it is like doing really well right now. There's a lot of projects in the pipeline. There are not enough people to do them, right? So, right. this you know, important important point to take note of. Yeah, and he's in that sweet spot of even more demand. Is like that that ten year person mm. because they're people who firms know are probably able to take a project from start to finish on their own with little to no like input or need to provide input from project managers or other staff, or they're able to manage junior staff and be able to like work with project managers or be a project manager. And so he's like at this sweet spot of the demand. And there's so few of those people because these are the people who in that 2008 frame, Mm -hmm. you know, are either the ones who heard from the people who left the field in right. 2008 and they're like, oh man, you know, you, you don't want to go out there right now. You, you know, just do this, you know, or we're just getting into practice at the 2008 and, and couldn't find jobs and had to wait to get in there. So we know the, that there's a talent drought of those kind of like mid-career folks that can do the whole project on their own kind of things. And so when people see people like that come on the market, they just start salivating. Yeah. And, you know, I was just like, dude, start a bidding war. And that's, I mean, I hate to say it, but that's capitalism right there. Like that's, yeah. Yeah. that's how it, that's how it works. And that can do a lot for people in a short amount of time. I mean, that could change someone's game for sure. Yeah. Okay. This was a long digression. This was a long digression because this was not my gripe. My gripe was far more important than this, far more (laughs) important than the economics of looking for a job and things like that. It honestly is, is that, okay, so you belong to the AIA. I belong to the AIA. So 
one of the many perks of, you know, being an AIA member is that you get a nice little shiny magazine, the Architect magazine. And over the past few years, I've seen the magazine get thinner. Thinner and thinner. And thinner. And, and, and thinner. More and more fuller of ads. Yeah. And I just received my most recent one, which is the one that has the 70th Annual Progressive Architecture Awards. And to call this a magazine is an embarrassment to magazines. This is a pamphlet. It's like a tract. It's like you... It's it, being handed out on a, on a corner by a religious zealot. Yeah. <laughs> the magazines that Southwest Airlines puts in to explain a 737 is thicker than this thing. <laughs> and as you flip through, I would say that at least 50% of the magazine is ads. And then I would say the other 50% is it's like an ad for the AIA to be a member of the AIA. Like if you've got this magazine, people, yeah, the, the non-members again, are not buying this. Yeah. If again, not magazine, but you know, whatever the hell pamphlet. this thing is, this pamphlet, yeah. I, I flip past it. You know, there's so many pages here that I flip past the one thing that I wanted to, you know, it's just like, you belong, you know, kind of thing. It's just like, I, I already it's, belong. It's like a public so like, service announcement. It, exactly. It's, it's already, a, <laughs> right. In the club. Like, it's it's literally like it's propaganda. That's what it is. I understand that my fees, the in in you know we talked about like the eight hundred plus dollars worth of fees of you know for national and um, state and local aren't really going to publish the journal of the American Institute of Architects. However, I remember Architectural Record. I I remember when Architect used to be its own magazine before it was the journal of the AIA and how much I liked that one more so than even architectural record when architectural record was the journal of the AIA. Right. And the spine of this thing is it's so spineless. thin. It's so thin that they can <laughs> barely get the type on it. I remember have it getting stacks and stacks of magazines where you could yeah. see the spine of it. And you just would look at the spot. The text on this is so small that if I didn't already have to have readers, I would have to have a magnifying glass to know that this was the March 2023 edition of the pamphlet. All right. So let's draw a parallel here. As this uh, magazine has turned into a pamphlet uh, by the, you know, less and less content, less and less interest in by readers, less and less interest by people taking out ads, even though there's there's a lot of ads. I mean, I, I would say there's probably less ads than there maybe used to be. I, I'm just guessing. Yeah. Because digital is taking over everything, right? And people are putting their money on social media and targeted advertising and things like that, where they're maybe getting mm -hmm. more metrics. Maybe they could even sponsor podcasts. Heck, I don't know. Um, they could. I know. So. What do you think about the profession itself? Is the profession itself wasting away as well? I mean, if you were to look at this, what used to be a full-bodied, fine magazine, and now it's just like a lesser version of its former self, would you say the profession is doing something similarly? And this magazine is just is a kind of indicator or maybe a, the profession of a, in a mirror. Somewhat of a yeah. metaphor of, yeah, of what's happening to the... 
uh-huh. the profession? I, I would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was an interesting yeah. uh, tweet, or I guess it's not a tweet. It's a what? What? Are, what do you put these things? What are these things on LinkedIn? If you, if you tweet on Twitter, I guess it's just a post on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, friend of the show, Evelyn Lee, posted that we are three recessions away from architecture going extinct. I saw that, and I saw that you were commenting on that. My comment was, architecture is a, once again a lagging indicator, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. like other other professions are just going extinct immediately. Uh, you know, like everybody's trying to cancel the tech industry right now. And it's it's interesting to see like architecture still has three recessions left. Does it, my, my question is, does it deserve to exist today? Because again, yeah, like it, uh, we're just going to slowly draw this out, right? Where it's like, like what's the fame? There's a famous old quote and I cannot think of who to attribute it to, but it's like, you know, it, it was like bankruptcy or something, you know, it happens slowly and then suddenly. That's kind of like what's going on with architecture. It's it's slowly fading and fading and fading, and then all of a sudden, it's just going to be gone. And the businesses who last until the very end, it, it, they're still going to see it as a surprise, right? And that's, to me, kind of the biggest problem is that firms and individuals and leaders and teams in the profession today don't think it's their problem. And so it's going to be surprising because they don't have their eyes on it because they're so busy racing to the bottom with their fees, like we talked about a minute ago. Yeah. It's funny how we kind of tied all that stuff together without actually even trying. But I mean, going to Evelyn's quote, she's not on the show, so we can speak for her, right? No, we wouldn't do it, that. But I mean, it's a, it's a serious statement. I don't think it's meant to just be clickbaity. We talked about this on previous recent episode, right? It's like, would people choose to be a part of this profession if it were honest about what it's like to be an architect, because education is glorifying the role of designers. Guess what? 99% of you in school are not going to be a designer. These universities have to do this because they have to attract students to feed their machine, which is their business of processing people into different industries and pay people paying for classes and paying for those professors salaries and and paying for the resources and the facilities and all those things that have been built up over decades and decades and they're expensive and so if you were totally honest in architecture school about what it's like to be an architect how many students would actually go into that or continue to do that knowing that they're going to just go out and, and be miserable right because that's kind of what the business of architecture is for a lot of people. I'm not not speaking for everybody, but I just pulled up her post. Real time, and real she, time follow up here. This is awesome. And, and so, you know, she was like, unpopular opinion, the architecture profession is three recessions away from being extinct. And she was talking about, she's like, there isn't any science behind this statement, but it was meant to be provocative. But then she kind of like <laughs> follows up with it, but there, <laughs> but, but, but she follows up with, with three dates. And, and kind of gives a bulleted, this is the state of affairs of the profession. It's like in 2016, we're emerging out of the, the Great Recession. We lost another generation of architects, the effects of which we're significantly feeling today. Totally true. And then 2020, we are in the midst of the Great Resignation. Firms are figuring out how to survive in a pandemic with remote technologies uh, companies that you know VCs have invested in are previously starting to hire individuals out of the practice. So here's the great resignation and the migration out of practice. And so we're losing more and more of those people. So kind of back to like, you know, my friend who's that 10-year person, that's the talent shortage. And so then now she's like in 2022, 
many firm leaders are struggling with talent shortage. So my substantiation of, you know, this hiring like demand for this one guy. And it's not just this one guy because I've got another friend and she's out there looking for a new job and she's even more in demand because she's got more experience and she's got, uh, you know, an alphabet soup of letters behind her name. She's CSI, she's AIA. I don't know if she's CSI, I think she's, but she's interiors. I mean, she's all these different things and she's amazing and would definitely be somebody that's desirable for all sorts of firms. But since there's such a demand for people like this, it goes to back when you and I were, you know, talked about this in the past. It's like, it's not about butts and seats anymore. It's the quality of the person that they put in that seat. Mm-hmm. And it's, and you're trying to get those right people because they're finding out that because of this lack of talent, because the talent is leaving, they've left the profession either in the last recession or the recession before that or during the pandemic. And now there's so little talent in there. There's, there isn't that, that middle generation to be able to train the new generation on how to do the job that they're doing. And then you've got the older generation who's just like holding on by a thread anyway. And, you know, they're ready to kind of call it quits. She says there isn't any science behind the statement, but there is by the proof of what's going on in the actual profession. I, well, you know? yeah. And I think that, that to me is what says it, right? It's, it's an, in, it's an intuition. And I think yeah. in, into, you should listen to your intuition when it speaks. Oh yeah. Because yeah. it's, uh, it's onto something usually. How long do you think it takes to train an architect? Like post-graduation, working in the industry. And before you answer what you think it takes now, what do you think it used to take 20 years ago? See, I'm in this firm believer of you really start hitting your stride of, I hate to say it, say it like this, but kind of like dependability that, you know, it's just like, okay, you've grown wings and you're able to start like really taking on larger and larger responsibilities at like year 10. Like, in, and that's, 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 to me is true fact of experiences that I've had in the profession with people, you know, either training me or me training them or, you know, me just learning on my own, those kind of things, because there are so many different nuances of architecture. There's the management of contracts. There's the negotiation of fees. There's the negotiation in fee generations of consultants. You know, that's just like on the management side of things. And then there's the actual like architecture of how do I put together a building? How do I put together a set of documents? How do I run that set of documents through permitting? How do I get it out to bid? How are all of these things? You can't really learn those kind of things to like really be an architect that almost feels confident enough to like maybe sign and seal something or whatever in a three-year period of your um, AXP training or graduating with a license. Those are just things that you learn and continue to learn under the tutelage and experience of others. And you can't get that in like that first three years. I mean, so you said 10 years, but you said something else. I just want to focus on the nuance. You said start to get to a certain place at 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So at 10 years isn't the answer. Is what I'm hearing. Ten years isn't the answer, and and if you recall, I mean, one of the the stupid things that I put on myself when I was pursuing my license is that I didn't feel like I was ready to become licensed until I at least had ten years. Right. 
<laughs> it, I, and, and that's just some weird number you grab out of the sky, right? It, it's it not totally even, was. <laughs> it's yeah. another intuitive kind of thing. But like thinking about it, because I think it's I think it's probably double 10 years. I think it's probably 20 years. And yeah. I think the other thing to think about is how many projects do you do in that amount of time? It depends on where you work. But if you right. work on right. public work projects or healthcare or something, that's like 10 years is like three projects. And so you get three different versions of that training so that you, like you said, at the end of that 10 years, you are starting to get your feet under you of knowing what to do next because right. you've only done it three times people will say oh my god that's forever and it's like that's three projects that is another way to look at it and it is another very realistic way to look at it this is something we get zero exposure to in school when you have eight or 16 or 24 weeks to do three projects or whatever it is per semester right it's like right it's the pace of that is is insane. You learn to work at like this high capacity limit of throughput and output and performance. And then you keep doing that in practice, but the timelines are way longer. I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a math quiz here. So I have a team member who worked on a project that I worked on before the pandemic and at least the first year, year and a half of the pandemic before I started my new project, which I just hit two years on that project. And so this kid, he worked on the concept phase, the scoping phase. He worked on a bunch of different proposals for this one particular project that started in 2016. The project won't be done until 2026. So if you do the math real quick, how long has he been working on one project? So, 10 more years. More than 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's I it, know it's, it's, I know some a, a senior project manager who started I I started with him on this project and it was 2013 and it's 10 years and that project is under construction finally. Now I, I will say that there are a lot of things that he's learned on this project. He's learned how to do additional service uh proposals, you know, he's he's permitted <laughs> he's permitted things. He's um, yeah. you know, so that he's, project didn't he work out a, exactly how they thought it was going to go he, in the very he, beginning. <laughs> absolutely. He has done a lot of construction administration. He's done a lot. And so almost every little bit and piece of the knowledge that you need to learn, but because it's only really one project, I mean, how much do you really learn about like all of the different nuances of all different types of buildings or experiences and stuff. I mean, he's pretty siloed into one project. Right. And, well, and if he leaves, man, he leaves with a lot of uh, information about that one project that no mm, one else has. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so that's why, you know, when I say 10 years, I mean, if you're working for a firm that does like really large projects and stuff and you get stuck on a project, you're going to get stuck on a project. It, and you're going to be limiting your exposure to a lot of other opportunities for career development. That's another reason why people move around, right? They want to build yeah. their resume based on projects that are exciting and projects are not always exciting. And so, I mean, this is a problem that architecture has as a profession. My sense is it takes like 20 years to train an architect. And I think firms think like that still. And that is a problem yeah. because I think they have less than 10 years to actually do it. And they probably have five years to actually do it 
because there's a misalignment of expectations about what the profession is and what you're going to get out of it and how fast that's going to happen versus how it's always been. And I'm not saying that it should be how it's always been, but it also can't be this kind of perfect version of it either. So it's got to meet somewhere in the middle, but both sides are being unrealistic in those expectations. And expectations are disappointments in the making. So if everybody's disappointed, right? Like the youngsters are disappointed because they're not getting anywhere fast enough. I mean, I, right. could, I could have raised my hand there too, being 20 years into it. Right, Things right. take for literal ever, okay? And then yeah. there's the other side of it, which is people who've been in it forever. And like, why don't people do things like I did them? And why don't they, how come people don't stay late? And how come people don't do, and it's yeah. like, how come, how come they don't know how to do this already? I can't tell you how many times I heard that. How many? How come mm-hmm. nobody knows how to do this? And it's like, well, are you teaching them how? And they're like, well, it's not my job, right? Like this is both sides yeah. are at this complete misalignment. And, and so like, let's go back to Evelyn's statement. Like it's not the recessions that are just literally going to kill the, the firms. Right. It's, it's the culture that's going to literally kill the firms. Because they cannot adapt, like nobody can adapt and nobody wants to adapt. And you've got the boomers versus the millennials and the Gen Zs. And here, here we are in the middle, yeah. once again, Quark as yep. a yep. Gen Xers. But as like, always. there's this extreme inward looking, it's all about, and I'm, I, I don't, I don't want to categorize people as this because I know there's tons of good people out there, but it's like, it's all about me and what I want. And so we can't build great firms because no one stays at great firms for long enough. People can't progress. They can't build themselves professional development in the f- profession fast enough to stay somewhere, right? Because they're always looking right. somewhere else for the thing right. to to feel like like satisfied. Right? So, man, there's a lot going on here. It's interesting because you say that. In, in the, so, like the last bullet point is, in employees, especially the incoming generations, are expecting more from their employers, which is interesting because you just went through this, and that's why they, you know, like firm hop and all of that other stuff is that they're expecting more from firms and they give maybe two, three years worth of a chance to a firm. Mm-hmm. It's just like, okay, well, this firm isn't working out for me. So, you know, I'm going to go, you know, see if I can find that satisfaction somewhere else. Right. And then they keep doing that for a while. And then maybe they figure out, okay, yes, you know, I need to stay a little bit longer somewhere. They figure out, to, ah, they're kind of all the same. Or, or they figure <laughs> out they're all the same and they're like, is this really what I want to do? And then they may like hop to architecture adjacent stuff or hop out of architecture and go somewhere else. Right. But then in turn, as you just pointed out, the firm is actually expecting more from the employee than they're willing to give. And it's just like, okay, well, what, why are you only giving me 40 hours? Because the culture was so different back then. You know, it's just like, well, you know, it's because that's all you're paying me for. It's just like, well, you know, show me that dedication. Show me that you're willing to take one for the team. And then they're like, well, well, why? You know, am I going to get paid more? Am I going to get paid more or that mythical bonus? So I was talking to a friend of mine who made the jump out of architecture to architecture adjacent. And he's got a little bit less experience than me. I mean, a little bit less by like almost not quite a decade, but close. It takes a decade to get a little experience is what I just heard. Yeah. (laughs) But so he left and he's working. I don't care if he knows he'd be fine with me talking a little bit about this because I'm not using his name or where he's moving, but he is working for a developer. And not only is he actually getting more money than like working for an architectural firm by quite a bit, actually, no jealousy there. It's not just a year end bonus, you know, that kind of carries just like keep struggling, you know, 
at the end, you're going to, you're going to get a little something. Now there's like performance bonuses for projects. We finish this project under time, under budget, here's a bonus kind of thing. And so there are real benefits if firms actually planned to like say, Hey, we're going to give you a bonus based on the performance of this project. Then instead of this annual, instead of this annual thing, it's just like, Hey, you just finished this project. We were very successful. You put a little extra in there. We came in under budget or under time, or, you know, it was a very successful project, or we met our goals for our profitability. And we were talking about, it's like, why don't architecture firms do that? Why don't architecture firms do that? Like other professions do that. A lot of other professions do that sort of thing. A a, a real honest to goodness performance bonus. I, 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 I think the reason that they don't is because there has always been a line of butts waiting to get into seats and you can always count on the line being there. And so what does that mean? That means architecture schools pump out way more graduates into the profession than the profession actually needs. There are way too many seats in architectural education for what the demand actually is. Now, I know you could say, well, right now, like they're on these hiring streets because there's so many experienced people left, right? It doesn't change the yeah. fact that schools are graduating way too many. And, and it's like, they're just taking on way too many architecture students who actually end up graduating and then expecting to get a job and do it. And so there's this l- virtual line of unending labor for these firms to work with until now. But even then, because I, I do agree that there is that unending line of labor, and you said it, labor, not yep. talent. Correct. Labor, because well, they're not firms ready. firms don't need 100% talent. They don't. Exactly. Yep. Well, I mean, yes, in a way, because if you, like, I would, I would contend that if you gave me, instead of giving me a bunch of fresh out of school folks that, you know, I have to spend, let's just say, you know, 30 to 50% of my time teaching them how to do their job and you gave me people who could do their job without me having to spend time teaching them how schools don't train them to do that i know that nor do firms right (laughs) and what i'm saying is is that you're like i could be more efficient with people that are of equal or a few years younger kind of in experience than me and I could operate with a much smaller team and be a little bit, yeah, a leaner team and be able to actually get a project done and be far more efficient in getting it done than when you bloat a team with a bunch of people who are, I'm I'm stepping into it because I feel like there is a, an absolute need and a requirement of firms to mentor, but we don't know how to mentor. Well, because, and this gets back to my point, which is, is that because there's always been this line of warm Mm -hmm. bodies waiting to get into the profession, that there is no thought or intention given to doing the mentoring to build relationships for the future leaders of their firms, because those people get burned out and they go somewhere else and there's someone else in line and the cycle continues. Yeah, And so therefore, yeah. the culture of mentorship cannot be built when it is not a priority. There's no intention because we just know that the next cheap person can come in and fill that seat. I mean, 
project team be damned, like they're the ones who are going to have to deal with it. That's not me. The person in charge of the project team is not the person in charge of the hiring. Like, let's be honest. Not at all. You might have a seat at the table if you have time for that. And so who's in charge of hiring? Who's in charge of vetting the quality of the graduate? And how do you even attract the highest quality graduate? It's not you. And so, again, we're three recessions away from extinction. I, I You know, maybe yeah. extinction's the wrong word, but we're definitely an endangered species. And we have to start thinking like that. And not only do we have to think like that, we have to do something about it because no one else is going to do it for us. Because guess what? If we don't exist, they'll find a way, like, to get the projects built. We're 50% ads. We're 25% cheerleading and 25% substance. Oh, my gosh. Sounds just like a a waning waif of a magazine. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) Oh, so what's the answer? I think something that I posted on LinkedIn this last week that got quite a bit of response was like, I mean, I can't tell you how many times all I heard was people talking, 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 and never seeing any action coming from it. And so there's a lot of great ideas and there's a lot of great initiatives and there's people who even want to do those things. Like literally, this was my idea. I want to own it. They're never given the runway to actually do it. So yeah, they they smile and nod. Yep, that sounds amazing. And then there's just zero anything given to make those things happen because the people who make those decisions to do nothing, like that the inaction is still a decision, right? It's... They're disconnected from the work. They're disconnected from the people. They're disconnected from the the younger generations. They're disconnected from what people actually want. They're disconnected from the ideas of the changes that are going on around architecture and are influencing architecture. And because this is such a long profession and it takes so long to get somewhere in this profession that once people get there, they protect it, they kind of insulate it, and they're disconnected. And it's seniority rules at that point. And that's how firms operate that it creates this kind of cycle that I, I, I hate to say it, like before I thought it just never ends. And now I actually could potentially see it ending and not because it doesn't deserve to, right? I'm not saying that yeah. it doesn't deserve to end, but because we do have to ask, does it deserve to exist? And if it does deserve to exist, how should it deserve to exist? And it's, does that align with how it exists now? I think obviously the answer is no, right? So. What if we design our firms and our profession? Would you rather allow someone else to do that to us or would you rather do it from within? But we can't seem to remove ourselves from solving our clients' problems for long enough for us to solve our own. Right. Because we'll gladly take on any and all problems that our clients will give us because that's what we get paid to do. But we don't look at our own firm, our own profession, our own trajectory as a group of professionals, as like a worthy design problem. And you just wanted to complain about a magazine. Come on. I love the fact that you actually brought this conversation in as a metaphor for the magazine. You could tell I'm a designer. I can connect exactly. these really weird dots. <laughs> the thing that everybody loved and was always excited to get, and then just watching it slowly over time just degrade and just fall apart and then it becomes basically a shell of what it is is an absolute perfect summary of what the hell's going on right now 
And it's an, exactly why I left working in the profession so that I could work on it because I, I am passionate about this. I don't have no vision for the future. Right. I absolutely have an amazing vision of the future of what the potential is for this profession to be. And I got so tired of inaction that I'm like, I'm going to go adjacent to architecture to work on the profession because we're actually going to make things happen. And my hope is that people will opt in to that rather than feeling like they're being forced to go along with it. Because seriously, if, right. if you're feeling forced to go along with it, I don't want you to come. There's no room for that. I can't drag dead weight. We can't continue to drag dead weight. But if you think about it, it's the people who may feel like they're being dragged into it. And, you know, this is just, this isn't really in support of or, or defense of. But it's just the fact that people hold on for hope that they're just like, you know, I can change it from the inside. I can change it from the inside. And you get so further and further away from that actually being a reality that you just keep holding on to that hope and it just never comes because you get stuck yeah, or sucked into this position of like, I can change it from the inside and it just never comes. And you're just like, I don't know what to do then. I just have to keep going. The difficult thing about changing from the inside is even if you are changing it from the inside in one firm, it's still just one firm in the larger right, landscape of right. the profession, right? And so you've got people like that in every single firm out there totally duplicating the work and not yeah. working together to do it. Now, that's that's not totally true. There's things like the architecture lobby and there's a handful of movements out there that are making a difference at a larger scale across the industry. But this is one of those things where affecting it from the inside is is difficult. And I drew the comparison of like breaking my finger and how mm -hmm. it's this one tiny piece of my body and it's still not healed. And I think about like how broken the profession of architecture is and I can see exactly why it is so hard to heal. It's because there's a million broken fingers in this and it's like, it's gonna take a really long time. It's actually going to take lifetimes. And to even comprehend that is totally overwhelming. And so most people just resign to the fact that like, okay, I guess we can't do anything because I won't get to experience that future. It's so far away. I don't know that we can ever get there and I won't even be around to witness it. So, okay, I'm just going to kind of step back into the hedge like Homer Simpson and just pretend I'm not here, which is a total like normal behavior, not even just architects. Most people just don't want to stand out. They just want to do their work and do a good job and they don't want to be rocking the boat in any way. That is most people. And so what I mean by when I say I don't want the dead weight, I can't pull the dead weight. There's a natural tendency for everybody out there and it kind of follows mm -hmm. that idea of that adoption curve. There's the early adopters, the innovators, the the, the right. early majority, the late majority and the laggards and all, and like this is a natural bell curve and most people are in the middle. And so we're really just talking about those first people. And so those are the ones I'm interested in talking to. Those are the people that that's where my sweet spot is. And that's why mm -hmm. I'm at Tact. These are the people that I want to be talking to so that we can affect the industry. Because you know who's going to affect the industry? It is the early adopters. That's how you start this chain reaction. That's how you start the movement. That's how you start to build scale over time. By definition, most people are not going to sign up for this stuff. And that has to be okay because that's totally natural and you can't force people to do something that they're not going to do. I've accepted that. I just want to say for those who have the tendency to want to change things, there are others out there 
you don't have to go it alone like architecture school teaches us all how to do like programs us how to do you're going to do it all by yourself and then licensure reinforces this fact you're going to go it alone you're a you're a sole practitioner and you've got to answer all the questions you've got to have all the answers and you got to know how to do all this stuff you could never look it up you could never hire a consultant to do these things if you want to get licensed or registered you've got to know how to do all this all by yourself it's like that's not the real world. Even the larger firms, you know, put you sort of in a silo, treat you as a cog of a machine. And well, not, you said it yourself, you know, like you, they want to hire somebody who can do the deliver the whole project and not be messed with. It, yeah, it's the Lone Ranger right there. Right, right. If you build a profession of loners, you are never going to come together. You are never going to, because everybody wants to do it their way. They will never band together to make it better for everyone because everyone doesn't do it the way that they do it. Because that's hard, right? Everybody right. hated team projects in school because people wanted to work in different ways and, and overlap and do the same things. And it's like those projects sucked. Guess what? Every project's like that in architecture, every single one of them. One of the things that I, I find of great value in my career is my ability to work with the contractor because I know that I rely on the contractor to, one, they're the ones who are building my vision, if you want to call it that, if you want to be kind of like singularly focused, but they're the ones who are going to be the ones who support the vision of this built environment, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so being able to work together with them, knowing that you rely on them as much as they rely on you. Now, I, I will say that a lot of times I've gotten stuck in the silo. It had been kind of like singularly focused, got to be the project, got to be the project, got to be the project. Mm -hmm. And it eats me up inside because, you know, you I, yeah. I want to be more broadly focused and more like exactly what you've done is like you forced yourself out of your comfort zone and you went to where you could have a greater effect. And that's what we need pretty much everybody to sort of do. If the profession is going to survive the next three recessions, it's going to have to be through teamwork and kind of like singular vision for success instead of the individual. Because the way that Evelyn broke down those bullet points, it was all about the individual survival of that one person or that one firm and not the profession. These are the conversations that, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who just want these conversations to stop like they ha this yeah. is the kind of dialogue that needs to happen because like we have to work this out if we don't have the platforms or the mediums to do the working of it out in public like, mm -hmm. we'll never get to that point where people are moving in the same direction together it will continue to be in these individual silos of more or less successful than each other without the sharing. And like, that hasn't gotten us very far. And I think it's time to like be seriously honest about that. There are things that are competitive advantages for individual firms and secret sauce. And typically that has to do with the people they were able to attract and keep. And it's not the tech, it's mm -hmm. not the strategy. It's like, it's the actual people. But, but there are a lot of things that are just total shared values and shared resources, but we don't treat them like that. And, right. and, and we have to start. So I'm glad that you did provoke that thinking with her anecdotal intuitive sense about three recessions away from extinction 
I mean, yeah. it is worth noting, like, even if it isn't that dire, it is, we are an endangered species and we do need yeah. to do something about it. And I'm always interested in talking to people who are interested in being those early adopters. And I don't mean like there's anything to adopt, but I mean, th those, it's a mindset, right? It's like a mindset of change is coming, man. People can sense it. And change doesn't mean positive, like gleeful outcomes, man. Like it could just yeah. mean like total disaster too, right? So, but yeah, I think yeah. that the it, people are sensing this, and that's why this well, is bubbling up more and more. You say that people are sensing it, and I kind of sometimes question: Do we know we're on the verge of extinction? Are well, we a lot really of denial? If, if people truly sense that they were on the verge of extinction, I, I, I want to believe. You just hold on to that life vest a little bit harder, right? <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, <laughs> that's, well, one, that's one option. Only one person can fit on this door. Not two. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, you're going to have to drown. Exactly. That was a reference. Uh, yeah, I think we can call it there. All right, let's call it right there. Good talk. Yeah. Good positive talk. Very. All right, see you next time. <laughs> see ya.